Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. This episode is about numbers. Jill is going to talk about three different ways that numbers are used to categorize wine, and I'm going to talk about the various ways people have cataloged pieces of music by prolific composers. Check out patreon.com slash scoresandpours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Yes! Num! Who's thirsty? (laughs) (laughs) This guy. Girl. Person. (laughs) Numbers? Well, should we say hello first? No. I think (laughs) let's get right to it, because I think... Numbers. Most people would never guess we're going to create a podcast about numbers. And you know why? It's minutia for geeks. It is. It's fun stuff, though. It's interesting things because numbers tell you a lot. Good day, Emily Reese. Hello, Jill Mott. So, (laughs) (laughs) I agree. Numbers tell you a lot. Mm -hmm. I would say, listeners, to those of you who love scores and pours dearly, donate Mm -hmm. money on Patreon. Number one. I didn't know we were doing that, but let's do that. So there you have it on Patreon.com. Number two, this may be a show that is, hey, if you want to know the difference between Cabernet Sauvignon and Pinot Noir, Mm -hmm. this will be an extremely interesting episode, maybe a lot of minutiae. Yeah. But um, if you like wine and you like the intricacies of wine, whether it's the history, whether it's the life of a composer... Then and you just don't need like fluffy tasting notes. This isn't really a fluffy. This podcast, is not a though. fluffy podcast. You will love this episode. You think? Yes. Who are we talking to again? I, I said if you don't like, <laughs> if you if you aren't looking for a, a fluffy a yeah. fluffy episode, even though we don't really have fluffy episodes. Our blooper one was that was fun. Yeah, that was a little fluff. Um, yeah. But I think this will be really fun. I'm talking yeah. about uh, three different categorizations via numbers in wine. I'm talking about AP numbers in German wine. I'm going to talk about lot numbers, and I'm going to talk about vintages. Like, what does that word even mean? Yeah. I am going to talk about uh, ways of cataloging music, most commonly known as opus numbers, but we're going to talk about other composers have some uh, very specific catalogs. So we're going to talk about a couple of those too. I... I have a soft spot in my heart for opus numbers because I think when you, when I've talked to friends about, you know, like they may know piano sonata number, you know, 16, say from Chopin, they might know opus number 16, but inevitably people recognize that there's another number around, you know, like it's a, it'll say uh, number 16 OP number. And I think People yeah. recognize it's there. Yeah. They just don't really know what to do with it or what it yeah, might or why mean. it matters or yeah. yeah. And and sometimes it kind of do- I mean it kind of doesn't, but it kind of does. Well, yeah. and that's um, exactly what these when we're talking about um, AP numbers, which is what we're going to talk about first, so that we can drink first. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Um, AP numbers on a German wine label doesn't really help most consumers unless you're really into German wine. So on a bottle of German wine. You'll find a number or a series of numbers, and that's the AP number. What does this number look like? Does it have hyphens, decimals? I will pass it to you. 
Okay. So look at the far bottom. Of, why don't you, just so you don't pour that all over your keyboard, why don't oh, you pour some out? Point. Pour some okay. into our glasses. I'll ER. pour one out for the homies. Please do. So on the far bottom of that, yes, Emily's doing the pouring duties. That never happens. Without oh, dripping. I oh, just spilled. Just dripped. I just totally spilled. That's quite okay. Is so it? On the far, no, you're good. Okay. So on the far bottom, look on the um, bottom of the white label. And yes. You'll see how long it is. So they are normally a collection of, you know, they can be seven to nine numbers. In this case, um, we've got one, eleven. two, three, four, five, six, yep, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven numbers. Wow. And what AP number stands for is Amlicht Prüfnummer, or like an official number of proof that this bottle is in fact what it says it is. Which okay. Is pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, it's Discours and Pours. Oh, yeah. Discours and Pours. We'll talk about why that's evident after we've started sipping wine. Okay. <laughs> oh, wow. This has a very bold smell. Ooh, in what way? What is bold about it? It's Emily very Reese? like, here I am to me. You know what I mean? It's not It's not a delicate, oh, wow, it's very delicious. Very like communion wine grapey, kind of. I'm excited to taste it. Me too. Let's do it. I like this. It's pretty lean. Yeah. This is mm. a, a producer called Kohler Ruprecht, which they are located just off the Rhine River. They're south of Frankfurt, um, a, a short distance in the region, in the Faltz region of Germany, which is known for, of course, it's Riesling, but um, this producer and others also do a great job with what they would call Spätburgunder, or Pinot Noir. Um, this is their 2017 Pinot. And Kohler Ruprecht, they've been around since the 1700s, and What's cool about their vineyards, they're all unirrigated. They're not using any fertilizers, any herbicides. I wouldn't really categorize them as a natural producer because they do use some sulfur post-fermentation at times. They do use a little bit of sulfur at bottling. And once in a while, they'll do a light filtration. So in that way, they wouldn't be considered natural. But a really good producer, uh, they definitely are. They do no temperature control. And most of their ferments happen. They're using all old oak in their winery, oh. or, or mostly old oak. Sometimes there's a new barrel here and there, but German oak, which is really cool in a world where everybody likes to... In a world. In a world <laughs> where people like to tout the virtues of the French oak and the American oak. <laughs> German oak is baller and uh, really does well with with grapes from this region because it's very tight-grained, can add some nice, like, elegant... Spice tones. This is my favorite red wine for a while. Okay then. Yeah. It's not it's not delicious. too funky. It's delicious. Yeah. So they're fermenting this in stainless steel. Um, and then they're moving it over to some Doppelstuck, which are twenty four hundred liter barrels, um, as well as some smaller Halbstuck. 600-liter barrels. Nice. A Stuck is a very common measurement in this region. Um, a Stuck is 1,200 liters. So if it's a okay. halb Stuck, it's a half Stuck. And okay. if it's a double Stuck, it's a double, double Stuck. Mm -hmm. But um, so let's get to the, the AP number, yeah. shall we? Yeah, 11 numbers long. Well, first, first, tell me what you think about it because you said it's bold. What else? What else? How is the wine tasting to you? Um, I love that the aftertaste is like 
it's kind of like Welch's grape juice. You know what I mean? It's just like so grapey at the end. And I, I don't know. It's just it's flavorful, but it's not heavy at all. It's refreshingly flavorful. I love that. Refreshingly flavorful. I I haven't been drinking so much natural wine in the last year that I think tastes grapey. That to me, this doesn't taste grapey. Okay. But that doesn't mean you're wrong. We just have different things we're well, it picking tastes up like on. Welch's grape juice, which to be fair is not. Mm. You know what I mean? I. Oh, yes, fist yeah. pump. Okay. Yeah. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Um. I get. I get like a lot of dried red fruit tones. Like a lot of. What I'm tasting on my finish is like dried cranberries, and I get a lot of like these dried herbs. Yeah, on the finish, mm-hmm. like thyme. Yeah, sage. Nice. Rosemary. No. Oh, okay. Maybe a little marjoram. <laughs> <laughs> But dried cranberry, I get no. I get I get some like dried cranberry and stuff like that. Um, and I really think it's elegant. It reminds me of. Um, it's definitely con- not conventional wine. I wouldn't go as far as yeah. to say that, but it tastes like very recognizably like Pinot Noir, which sure. I enjoy that. So um, the AP number, why it was even put on a label in the first place, was. Um, in 1971, there was, you know, we're per- post-World War II. We've got, you know, there was a time in Germany where you couldn't be saying this village was better than that village for a certain thing. So there was a lot of collectivization for the bettering of the country kind of thing. And German vineyards were not immune from that. So they they had a lot of taking, uh, say, a village that had 100 different vineyards, and they would turn that into 25 vineyards, which was a good thing for some because mm-hmm. they would get, they had a shitty vineyard and now they get yeah. to be called a heralded vineyard. Sure. And then the flip flop happened. And so part of this was we need to make sure that we can prove who's doing what, who's doing what where. And that's where this, this, um, Amplicht Prüfnummer comes into play. And so in this situation, um, I will put a picture of it up online, but the number is 5123-147-0919. of sommeliers don't even know yeah. what exactly the hell. Exactly which part of that which means what. Exactly. To tell you what that means, because it's interesting yeah. in the fact that like it's it's minutiae that you just don't know wine gets this intense. You yeah, know? no, because this is some intense shit. I'm serious. It's some intense shit, Emily it Race. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> so, it's so German, though, really. I mean, and so I mean German. that from a place of love. Like, this is this is organizational. This is engineering what maybe doesn't need to be engineered, but we're glad it has been. Yeah, that's exactly. Point. Yeah. So the five in the beginning tells us the testing station where this was actually, this bottle was brought to to be tasted by a tasting panel. Okay. And those... Those tasting panel people are not only going to say, yes, this is in fact what it is, but they're going to approve it so that anybody that's going to go buy this bottle isn't going to be surprised that it's not what it says it is. They're shy of 10. So if you knew the numbers, um, which there are websites where you can find out. For sure. Which is which. This is in Neustadt, which is um, number five. And then we look at number one, two, three. And that is the village that the producer resides in. So every village, mm-hmm. and there are hundreds of them. Oh, I'm sure. 
they have a each village has a number, so then we can denote what village is that producer in. So we have five, one, two, three. Now we're at one, four, seven, and that tells us the producer number. Okay. So nobody else has yep. one so four like, seven within one two three. Sure. So it's like your employer number when you work at Cub as a kid, or something, or you work retail, or something. Exactly. That's you. You are that number, and then yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which I kind of want to find my favorite producer in Germany that has like in this case, let's say we're called Ruprecht, and I just want a shirt that says hashtag one four seven because only. Two other people are right. going to know what that is. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, but anyway, so that's send that my way if you guys want. So we have five, one, two, three, one, four, seven. And then these last four numbers are what become important for collectors, consumers of like really most of the time high end or difficult to access German wine. Okay. So you'll see a 09, which is a lot number, and each bottling is different. So let's just say, this isn't an example. I'll go into exceptions later. But let's just say um, this Kohler Ruprecht had one bottling that was harvested. The grapes were harvested in October. Okay. Then they harvested Pinot Noir in November. And then they harvested in December. Okay. Those would all look the same on a bottle. Oh. They could all look like 2017 yeah. um, Pinot Noir. Yeah. And it says cabinet. We just won't go into that for now. But what that... 09 is is specifying is each one of those bottlings would have a different number. Okay. 09, 10, 11. So okay. if you're a collector, you would be able to know by looking at the label that everything looks the same. The one thing that's going to look different is that lot number, and that's going to help you know, oh, that's the one that was harvested in December. Amazing. Or super interesting I mean, and really some cool. detail. Yeah, I used to buy wines for a German wine section where we had about – 250 German wines on the shelf, and that was shit I needed to know yeah. to buy $400 half bottles of German wine. Wow. <laughs> you know, like, you didn't know that, and you had yeah. some dude come in who was like, hey, Missy, who's 26, <laughs> do you have lot number blah, blah, blah? And I needed to be able to be yeah. like, why? Yes, I do. Yeah. Would you like this one and this one as well? <laughs> anyway, so that's the lot number. And then lastly, so now we're at five, one, two, three, yeah. one, four, seven, zero, nine. Lastly, one, nine. That is the year in which the wine was tasted with the panel. And that's usually, you know, give or take a year to two years after the wine was made. So in this case, we have 2017 you're going to see a 2018 or you're going to see 18 or 19 on that final number. Here, oh. the fact that this is, you know, two years in oak, mm -hmm. this was tasted in 2019. Yeah. So good. I mean, Isn't it so good? It's just so it's ridiculous and good. It is. It, it is a little absurd. It's funny to me that the vintage is nowhere in the number, but yet the harvest date and the tasting date. So obviously- But the, the, but the harvest date is on the label- in big print, right? 2017. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Emily's looking well, the at the label year. right now. Yeah. The Yes, thank you, the harvest yeah. year. Mm -hmm. But what's great is Emily's looking right now at the label as if she was trying to decipher Mandarin. Yeah, that's about <laughs> right. Because German wine labels are really that complicated it, sometimes. It's really incredible. I mean, there really is everything you need to know. Seriously, like what more could you possibly want to know about this wine? that 
couldn't be included. I mean, it, it's well, amazing. And to, and I mean, there's go, a lot to learn about to it. To go I know, off but. track, it, I mean, what also you're right, and we can add to that by cabinet means we know the Urshel level or the sugar level oh. at which these grapes were harvested. Because wow. if it's at a different level, yeah, we know it had higher potential alcohol or lower potential alcohol. Okay. So this is cabinet. Yeah. And But then we know sometimes you see cabinet and that can insinuate that it's going to be have a certain level of sweetness. So they say trocken, so you know it's dry. Yeah. yeah. Everything you need to know about this is on the label. Yeah. It's That's, actually brilliant. It is. It, it really and is annoying. brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about some opus numbers, ER. <laughs> We've been talking about alcohol-related 11-digit numbers for 18 minutes. I know. It's so long that I'm out of wine. Well, let me refresh you. So opus numbers, just really just a way to catalog someone's musical output, you know, just like a library. There's a Dewey Decimal System. There's the Library of Congress cataloging system. And opus numbers fulfill a role much like that. Depending on the composer, it can get a lot more complicated. Um, you know, someone like Johann Sebastian Bach, who wrote more than a thousand works, that can get pretty tough to manage. Uh, so basically, opus numbers, 15th, 16th century, uh, comes from the Latin uh, meaning work to to work, right? Mm-hmm. Or just uh, work. Labor or work. Labor yep. or work. And then uh, kind of developed a little differently, I think, depending on where you were in Europe, but has then become basically a, a universal system for cataloging uh, pieces of music. So in many cases, a composer who has an opus catalog it will be chronological in many cases where opus one means they were pretty young opus, you know, however many pieces they wrote, if they wrote 500 pieces and you're listening to opus 485, they're about to kick it fairly sure this is toward (laughs) the end of their compositional career, but there are composers that aren't chronological and, and there are multiple reasons for that. Um, yeah. So, so that's kind of the, the skinny on it all. Have, have opus numbers in how they've been utilized changed through the decades and centuries like and i say this because i've read some things that have said like in the 1800s a lot of opus numbers were you know they were used when things were published works were published and Mm -hmm. then in the 1900s it was more like when when someone actually finished it it wasn't just when it was published because that can take you know months to years so Is, have have you noticed that? Yeah, I mean, again, it it really is dependent on the composer themselves. So someone like Beethoven has, you know, a hundred and some opus numbers, but he wrote hundreds of works. So he has many pieces that instead of OP, abbreviated for opus, and then a number, it'll say WOO, which stands for without opus. Beethoven, again, is an example of someone who's chronological. So you can tell that if it's opus 25, we're talking about a young Beethoven. And if it's opus 116, it's older Beethoven. So I'll ask you more questions in a second. Can we we listen to something? Sure. Let's listen to something. We've already drank wine. I know, We should be listening to something. Well, uh, let's listen to some Chopin because Chopin is an instance. Well, there are actually a lot of really interesting things about Chopin's catalog because there are more numbers than just opus numbers with Chopin. But generally speaking, um, we refer to his works with opus numbers, and there are a lot of different ways to catalog anyone's output. Uh, Chopin, someone 
organized it by kind of emotion or feel, right? Yeah, that's yeah, so she, nuts. Yeah. Like what? Because generally, as I said, it's either chronological or by genre. But in any event, Chopin does have straight up o- opus numbers, and th- those come in handy, particularly when you're talking about certain works of someone. Like, for instance, uh, Chopin wrote a set of etudes twice. He wrote an Opus 10 set, and he wrote an Opus 25 set. So when someone says, and generally you run into this in music school, right? So this isn't something you're going to happen on the city bus. But uh, someone's like, I'm learning Chopin etudes. Oh, which set? You know what I mean? Or uh, Haydn, for instance, wrote sets of string quartets. He would publish them in in sets. So instead of um, you know doing one at a time or whatnot, it would be like, his version of an opus number, which is not OP, it's H-O-B. It would be H-O-B, a Roman numeral, which would be a two, and then a set of numbers, and then another set of numbers. And that would tell you which set and which one in the set. You know what I mean? So it's... Yeah. Yeah. So it, it would go, it would tell you if you looked at that number, you'd be able to say, oh, well, that's a string quartet because the Roman numeral is two. And then the cardinal number after that is this number, and then the number after that tells me, oh, that's the second Prussian quartet or whatever. So if I was listening to Haydn today and I was listening to the 16th, it was the it was the literally piano sonata number 46, but it was okay. 16 mm-hmm. number 46. Um, well, let's listen to that because I've talked too much. So let's listen to Haydn piano sonata. Piano sonata number 46. Roman numeral, though, 16. The 16 tells you, if it's the Roman numeral tells you, again, what type of work it is, so piano, sonata. Mm-hmm. And then number 46 is the 46th one he wrote. So great. It's funny that he just yeah. didn't write piano, sonata, number 46. <laughs> That's well, Roman he's not the one it. who cataloged it, first oh, yeah. of all. That Isn't got cataloged it? a couple hundred years after he died uh, in the 20th century by Anthony von Hoboken, Dutch musicologist and collector. He was independently wealthy, and he could just do that stuff with his time. I mean, he just chose to dedicate his life, really, to cataloging cataloging Haydn's works, and he also collected a lot of what are called Urtext editions. And Urtext editions are, if not original manuscripts, they're the closest thing to it. So... You know, when you go to the store and you buy a book of, you know, Bach inventions or you buy a book of Haydn piano sonatas, those have been edited. Someone has gone through and put in maybe dynamics or maybe some articulations Bastards. or something. Well, I mean, that's pretty normal. And so urtext editions would be in the composer's hand, more or less. So in any event, that was something that Hoboken (laughs) did. That's cool. And sort of along the lines of when we talk about um, tone poems, like you obviously can, you can very much so enjoy Don Quixote or other tone poems 
without knowing the context. Yeah. But when you know the context, does it does it make it more meaningful? Do you enjoy it f- for its contrasts and its its storyline more? And that's where I would say this color Ruprecht or you know this number, you can listen to it or drink them, and you're obviously gonna enjoy them all the live long day. Yeah. But if you when you push play on your Spotify or your yeah. Apple Music mm-hmm. or throw in your CD or what, if you have it on, lucky enough to have it on vinyl, yeah, you put it on. When you look at it and you can recognize what all those numbers mean, yeah, does it give the work itself more substance? Maybe not the work itself, but the fact that someone has taken their whole life yeah. to categorize, yeah, and then you've got the Haydn part of the categorization there. Yeah, same with the wine. You don't need to know these numbers for from Adam to be able to enjoy the wine. Right. But you're going to end up looking at this mm-hmm. and just to know what that means, even if it's just knowing that it's a number of qu- proof, a number of quality, not right. obviously remembering the numbers. Right, right. You might, if you put it on a table, that may become an element of discussion. Like, what the hell is that number for? <laughs> and and instead know. of being like, mm, I don't know, <laughs> you can be like, well, actually... Let me tell you. <laughs> Let me tell you what all nine of these numbers mean. Or 11 in this case. Or 11 case. in that case. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about lot numbers. So lot numbers, it's so easy. Um, they're back in the, like the 70s, 80s, 90s, and even the earlier part of last decade. When you were a Vin de France or a table wine, if you were a Vino de Mesa in Spain, or, uh, you know, a, a, like a country wine, as it yeah. were, you could not put your vintage date, the date the grapes were harvested, on the label. That makes no sense to me. Why? Because you, in theory, the government wanted to promote higher-end wines, like yeah. Bordeaux, Riojas, Piedmont wines. So if if they eschewed your ability to put the vintage on the label, then you would want to... Try to up your game, mm-hmm. w- meaning pay the government to be yeah. able to be part of, you know, and up your quality game too, but to be able to be part of the Barolo area yeah. or the Rioja area, or in this case, the Faults area, okay? okay? And so there were many producers, if you didn't do that, you would not get to put the vintage on the label. And what, a lo- especially people in the more natural, biodynamic realm, they decided, okay, well, listen, screw this. I'm doing everything as well as all of these producers, but I have Chenin Blanc planted in the South versus shitty Pickpool, let's just say, in Southern <laughs> France. So I'm going to make the wine as best as I can with biodynamic treatments, no sulfur, blah, 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 mm-hmm, blah. It's going to mm-hmm. be high quality. And the wine was actually worth a lot of money. They became like a cult favorite, but they still couldn't put their vintage on the freaking label. So Crazy. what they would do is they would write on the side, you'd see lot one five mm-hmm. or lot one two. And you would know that that meant it was the 2015 or the 2012. Nowadays, that's it's becoming more prevalent for country wines, table wines to be able to put their vintage on the label. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people just do to, a lot of winemakers do to practice and they don't want to update their labels because <laughs> that just costs money. Yeah. Um, is they, you'll see a lote or lot and sometimes yeah. it's typed in, sometimes it's just handwritten. Um, that means the vintage in which the wine was harvested. Nice. Yeah. That's pretty simple. So simple. It's yeah. a lot uh, less complicated than say the cocal 
catalog? Well, that would be Mozart. Yes. Wolfgang. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who did kind of sort of catalog some of his works, and his father kind of helped Mozart catalog some of his works, and so that was beneficial to Kirkel when Kirkel chose to catalog Mozart's uh, works. Uh, Mozart, his catalog only goes to 626, 626 being his Requiem, which is the piece he uh, died in the midst of composing. So in that regard, you think, oh, we're fairly, we're fairly chronological here. Well, Mozart wrote up to 800 works, so there's a lot missing out of that catalog as well. But as happens with many of these big catalogs, things get added, people rework the catalog, they'll go through it again and maybe renumber things. Hey, let's not work for world peace. Yeah. Let's just recatalog <laughs> the well, already the already done you catalog. Follow your skills, yeah, really. I, I mean, hear you. I hear you. <laughs> some of these music- musicologists, we don't want it anywhere near world peace. But <laughs> but uh, uh, but yeah. So that's the Kirkel catalog w- was Mozart K O umlaut C H E L Kirkel catalog. Um, yeah. That's there's really not too much interesting to say in my opinion about the Kirkle catalog just because it is fairly chronological. You know, Bach's catalog gets interesting because much like Haydn, it's by genre, and that even some subgenres get their own sets of numbers in Bach's catalog. So, like the Brandenburg concertos, for example, there are six of those, and they have their own six little number set of numbers. You know, and then all of his cantatas have their own numbers, his motets have their own numbers. So what about Scarlatti? There's the there's Longo that has you know there's the L. Yeah. There's um, Kirkpatrick the K number. Mm-hmm. There's Pestelli the P number. I mean yeah. WTF people. Really? I know. Yeah. And and uh, generally speaking with Scarlatti you'll see a K number much like you would see with Mozart but it's not the same K it's as m- Kirkpatrick. Right. <laughs> okay. So so with Scarlatti it's it's almost always K numbers as well. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, so before I get into talking about vintage variation with wine yeah. and why the vintage is even important, yeah. So can I digress to Chopin? Yeah, let's talk we, about and Chopin, we, and then again, we can listen to some Chopin because because I said I was gonna we were gonna listen to it earlier and we never did. So go on. So we have B, we have KK, and then we have the the way that Josef Michael Komeninsky who is a Polish composer slash musicologist, mm-hmm. went about categorizing Chopin's music according to harmonies, yeah. textures. I mean, seriously. Yeah. Joe Schmo off the street who loves classical music. Yeah. Hopefully they could try to learn and embrace that, but the majority of people just like learning and embracing wine. Yeah. They just want to drink it. You yeah. know, I just want to listen to classical music and relax. So yeah. WTF. I mean, like, there are six parts, and each part had a letter, and we have A, C, D, E, P, and S of what he felt those variables that they fit into. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's, I can understand someone wanting to make more sense of a catalog. I mean, he did some really harmonically interesting things. I mean, even in his etudes, which we'll hear right now, There's some funky stuff going on.
blows my mind how early he wrote these. He wrote these in the uh, this Opus 25 set, which is his second set, in 1835. Published in 1837, but he, he wrote them all in 1835. And just for some context, uh, Beethoven died in 1827. So... Uh, and, there was some overlap. Uh, Mozart died in 1791, so, you know, obviously end of an era in 1791 and then Beethoven kind of carries this torch and then everybody picks it up and runs with it, including Chopin. You know, I mean, that could easily have been written in 1880 and he wrote it in 1835. It's really remarkable. Just, it's really chromatic and crunchy in spots and it sounds simple, but it really is not simple at all. And uh, we're listening to his uh, Opus 25, number five etude, his E minor etude from the Opus 25 set, which, um, yeah, that's... Just a, it's just weird, not weird, but forward-thinking harmony, even though it doesn't, might not sound like it to you, but uh, for the time, very much so. So that was Chopin. Beautiful. Yeah, it's good stuff. And, I mean, he's got some really funky harmonic stuff in there for the era. That's certainly a choice out of several. Yeah. But, yeah, it's good stuff. Opus 25 set of etudes, not the Opus 10 set. (laughs) Love it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to just dive really quickly into, you know, everybody, almost anybody that buys wine, if they look for it, can find a year on the label, which signifies... The year in which the grapes were harvested, because um, they could be aged days, months, years in barrel, um, and why that matters. Really, you know, I mean, people can say that in all wines, conventional, natural, otherwise, vintage is important, but I really don't think that it's captured as much as it can be its importance, hmm. unless you're drinking like. 100% natural wine with very little sulfur added, okay. um, if not no sulfur added. And just to showcase that example for something, I guess it's audible. People obviously can't taste with us, but um, I was working at Barbrava, a place that I do the wine list for um, in Minneapolis here a couple nights ago. And we opened up, we had two magnums of the same wine. Magnums are big, giant bottles. Yeah, they're, they're double bottles, 1.5 liters. And... It's from a producer in Anjou, so central Loire Valley, called Olivier Cousson. And we had his just Pourjou, uh, or not Pourjou, it's his Pour Breton, like his okay. Cab Franc. And we had the 2015 and 2016 vintage. And I offered them as a set. Like, hey, folks, do you want a set of these wines, a glass of each, to taste the difference? And people were like, really? It's that <laughs> noticeable? And I'm like, hold on to your hats. <laughs> and people were floored. They inevitably had a favorite or they would, yeah. you know, they were questioning why or what. And one vintage was noticeably warmer. It was more round than hmm. the other. And the 2015 was like a little bit leaner, um, a little bit more herbaceous and not as kind of slightly extracted yeah. due to that warmth. And so I think you know, I, I tend to never say one vintage is better than the other because I love that I can taste a rainy year. I love that I can taste when a winemaker's hit, hitting their stride or when yeah. it was really hot or when conditions were perfect. You know, that's that's yeah. 
lucky. You know, we're lucky when we get that opportunity. Mm -hmm. But that's what, when you look at vintage, um, inevitably it comes from this place of trying to discern this is different than that wine that looks the same. The only difference is the vintage because of Mm -hmm. basically weather and like what has that vigneron slash winemaker done differently to try to coax the best out of that vintage and still make a delicious drinkable wine. Yeah. So, um, vintage, easy concept. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're really into wine, it's fun to, it's fun to taste vintage after vintage to taste weather. Yes. Now in some like those big, huge commercial wine places, it's not going to really taste that much different, is it? Correct. Their objective is every time you go to buy X wine, mm-hmm. it tastes the same. Yeah. That's why you're loyal to X brand. Yeah. So it's no different, honestly, than vodka or gin. Like when they're making wine out of a silo, they're able to do <laughs> a lot and add a lot to that wine so that 2017 tastes like 2015. Yeah. Um, which, you know, can be great. You want to spend $8.99 on a bottle of wine mm-hmm. and you want consistency? That's what that's for. Yeah. Not in my world, but yeah. <laughs> in their world, go for it. Yeah. All right. Here's to numbers. Here's to numbers. Here's to minutia. Minutia. Let's get a little more wine in our bottles. Or in our glasses. That too. <laughs> <laughs> to scores and pours. To scores and pours. Thank you for listening to episode 28 of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You'll see a wine list and a playlist at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. We're also on Instagram at scoresandpours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scoresandpours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc. 